There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 392. And today in the show, we're covering a wide swath of late season hunting tactics with experts such as Don Higgins, Gabe Adair, Neil Doherty, and Will Brantley. Alright, welcome to the Wired Tunt Podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today we're talking late season. How to master the late season. By the time you're listening to this, uh, November is is just about done. And the peak of the rut, at least, is behind us. So that next phase of the season, next thing on our horizon, it's the late season. That, that period from December through January or whenever your seasons end, that's what lays ahead of us. And for a lot of people, this can be a tough part of the season because you've been going at it for weeks and weeks or months and you're wore down, but it also can be a terrific opportunity for failing a tag, whether that be killing a doe to fill a freezer or even, and maybe especially killing a big old buck, uh, given some unique things going on at this time of year. So that's what I want to cover today, and what I want to do, what we're doing here is is taking a page out of the same playbook that we used back in October when I released the Mastering October podcast, which was a compilation of excerpts from old podcasts we did early in the years of Wired to Hunt, because I know a lot of you, tens of thousands of you, are listening now that we're not listening seven years ago. So I want to make sure some of those archived, really great conversations are getting heard by all of you guys today. So what we're going to do is first I want to lay out some foundational basics to hunting the late season. I want to kind of set the stage with the things that I personally am thinking about. And then we're going to hear from four different experts with their own unique perspectives on hunting at this time of year, uh, with their own regional differences and, and style differences and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then you'll hear some little bits and pieces from those guys. And if you want to hear more from any one of them, you can go back and listen to that full episode. 
where you can, you know, hear hear much much more, get into greater depth on these topics. Uh, but at least this is going to give you a preview and kind of give you the punchiest, most important bits all in one place, allowing you to kind of figure out which fits your style and, and which would be most helpful for you to dive into further. So that's the game plan. Um, you know, it's the late season is an interesting time because because of what I guess I led with, because more than anything, it might be the mental side of things is the most important because after you've hunted maybe September, maybe October, maybe November, after you've done all that, it, it, it becomes harder than ever before to just stick with it. So I want to end on that topic, but first here's who we're going to talk about. We're going to hear from Neil Doherty. He's an outdoor writer and a habitat and hunting consultant from New York. We're going to hear from Don Higgins. He's also an outdoor writer, also a hunting and habitat consultant from Illinois. We're going to hear from Will Brantley. He's down in Kentucky. He hunts in Tennessee and other places like that as well. He's written for Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, etc. And then Gabe Adair, who is a land specialist for Whitetail Properties. He's over there in Iowa. All four of these guys consistently have success targeting deer across different parts of the country, killing big mature bucks, uh, doing it year in and year out. They're a wealth of knowledge while also not only you know, having success themselves, but also being uh, journalists, writers, consultants. They're able to, to speak and work with many others too to, to get those different perspectives. So let's, let's cover a few of my like I guess I call it a second ago, foundational ideas to keep in mind at this time of year and to, and to kind of keep in mind as you hear from these four folks. Number one, the late season food is king, right? Deer, especially bucks, but really the entire herd after the rut in November, they're worn out, they're tired, they are uh, deprived of of food and sustenance. And with the winter kicking off, they need to kind of rejuvenate. They need to refuel. So they're hitting food hard. Food is the name of the game. If you can find the top food source, you're going to find deer. And uh, if you can control the food sources and put things in place for late season, you're really going to be in the cards. So food is very, very important. It's going to be different for wherever you hunt. It's different whether you can keep crops up or if you're hunting public land where you're just trying to find natural food sources. That's all location specific. But first and foremost, you got to find high quality late season food. Each one of these guys is going to talk about that to varying degrees, give you some specifics on the types of food to think about. Number two pressure. Over the last couple months of hunting, deer have been increasingly pressured. By that, I mean they're being hunted by a lot of people. They're being bumped around. They're being chased. They're being shot at. So deer are really feeling that. And by the time the late season comes around, they've changed their behavior significantly to account for that. So these deer that might have been hanging out in wide open fields back in August or September, at this point, they might not be because they've been badgered in those places. So they are trying to find pockets where they feel safe. So sanctuaries, maybe that is a swamp that hunters just never want to walk into, or maybe it's a property that no hunting is allowed on. Maybe it's a, a, a wildlife refuge or something where people can't go into and hunt those different kinds of things. You got to try to find where are these pockets where deer have been able to avoid humans. That's where they're probably going to hole up right now. You can create something like that. You can create a sanctuary in your own property that you leave alone so that once the late season rolls around, you still have deer that hang out there 
and then you take advantage of it and hunt near there or in there. Or you can go and find something like this that was created by default because other people don't want to get there or because there's something about it that makes it hard. Maybe there's a little island that's surrounded by water that these bucks can bet on and never get bothered. Whatever it is, think about that. Look for that. Center your hunting strategy around that. If you can find high-quality late-season food right there where one of these unpressured pockets is, you have got the ideal late season scenario. Number three, if you can find those two things, the next step is timing, choosing when you're going to go to hunt those places. This is an important concept all year round. If you listen to the podcast, you know we've talked about it a thousand times, picking your days when you're going to hunt, when you're not going to hunt, not hunting too much when the conditions aren't right, because that pressures these deer further and changes their behavior. So you want to try to time those hunts to the best possible moments to take advantage when they most likely will move while reducing risk um, of, of pressuring and educating those deer. This is even more important during the late season because of what I just described, how pressured these deer have been, how how high-wired they are now, how on edge they are. So you got to be even more careful than usual because, you know, you might have just a handful of strikes to go into these best spots before that one mature buck says, well, screw this, I'm done. My little sanctuary spot is not a sanctuary anymore. I'm not moving anymore until after dark or I'm going to push back even further. So in a lot of cases, the, the timing is going to be dictated by severe winter weather, really cold temperatures for your area or snow. Those two things, I'm generalizing here, but those two things can really get deer on their feet and moving. So you get that high quality late season food source. You find some unpressured deer still or a little pocket where they feel safe. You wait for that great weather and then bam, you go in there and you've got a special opportunity. Finally, probably the most important thing I alluded to this several times already, but persistence, being able to keep at it, being able to stay positive and thinking that it's still possible, man, that's, that can be a tough thing all year long, but by the time you get to December or late November or January, You've been grinding at it. You've been trying. And, and if it hasn't come together for you yet, I know this from experience, if it hasn't come together yet, it can be really hard to leave the nice warm house, to leave the fire, to, to get up early in the morning still and head out there, uh, to leave your family and friends, to go sit in a tree and freeze your butt off. That can be tough. So having the stick to to keep at it, to stay focused out there, to still believe, to keep working, you know, words can only do so much. So I can say this stuff and it doesn't really change anything, but it is probably the crux that all this stands on. This is what's going to make or break success during the late season is do you have the mental toughness to keep at it? Um, so I want to read you a little passage here. We, I've referred back to this book a bunch this season, so I'm just going to stick with the theme. We've talked about this book, The Obstacle is the Way, I'm going to read a passage from it about persistence because I think it, it kind of nicely sums up what I'm getting at here and it, it nicely sets the stage for the rest of our conversation here today. So here's a little segment from The Obstacles of the Way by Ryan Holiday about persistence. For most of what we attempt in life, chops are not the issue. We're usually skilled and knowledgeable and capable enough. But do we have the patience to refine our idea? the energy to beat on enough doors until we find investors or supporters, the persistence to slog through the politics and drama of working for the group. Once you start attacking an obstacle, quitting is not an option. It cannot enter your head. 
Abandoning one path for another that might be more promising? Sure, but that's a far cry from giving up. Once you can envision yourself quitting altogether, you might as well ring the bell. It's done. Consider this mindset. Never in a hurry, never worried, never desperate, never stopping short. Remember and remind yourself of a phrase favored by Epictetus, persist and resist. Persist in your efforts, resist giving into distraction, discouragement, or disorder. Persist and resist. There's no need to sweat this or feel rushed. No need to get upset or despair. You're not going anywhere. You're not going to be counted out. You're in this for the long haul. Because when you play all the way to the whistle, there's no reason to worry about the clock. You know you won't stop until it's over, that every second available is yours to use. So temporary setbacks aren't discouraging. They're just bumps along a long road that you intend to travel all the way down. Doing new things invariably means obstacles. A new path is, by definition, uncleared. Only with persistence and time can we cut away debris and remove impediments. Only in struggling with the impediments that made others quit can we find ourselves on untrodden territory. Only by persisting and resisting can we learn what others were too impatient to be taught. It's okay to be discouraged. It's not okay to quit. To know you want to quit, but to plant your feet and keep inching closer until you take the impenetrable fortress you've decided to lay siege to in your life, that's persistence. Thomas Edison once explained that in inventing, the first step is an intuition and comes with a burst but then difficulties arise. What set Edison apart from other inventors is tolerance for these difficulties and the steady dedication with which he applied himself towards solving them. In other words, it's supposed to be hard. Your first attempts aren't going to work. It's going to take a lot out of you, but energy is an asset we can always find more of. It's a renewable resource. So stop looking for an epiphany and start looking for weak points. Stop looking for angels and start looking for angles. There are options. Settle in for the long haul and then try each and every possibility and you'll get there. When people ask where we are, what we're doing, how that situation is coming along, the answer should be clear. We're working on it. We're getting closer. And when setbacks come, we respond by working twice as hard. So there you go. A few words on persistence, that most important quality to success in the late season, if you're asking me. I can tell you from personal experience, I don't know if we're in the late season just this moment yet, but on November 22nd, which is pretty late in the season, my persistence finally paid off and I was able to tag out in Michigan on a very special buck. I'm very excited to share that story with you. You're going to hear about it next week. That will be my example of persistence. And I just want to let you know that um, it's not easy. It wasn't easy for me. But if you keep at it, good things can happen. So that's where I will leave you today. We're going to hear from Neil Doherty first, Don Hagen second, Will Brantley, and then Gabe Adair. So, Let's get into it. Uh, I will give you one other quick plug here. The Back 40, that show I host on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. New episodes are out now. Episode 3 just came out a few days ago. It follows along with how we set up the property that we're hunting there in the Back 40. 
what the trail camera survey showed us in the summer, some of our tree stand prep, some of our tower blind prep we put out there for the new hunters and for my dad's hunt. You get to see the whole thing starting to come together, which I think will illustrate for you you know, how we were able to have the success that I've talked about in the podcast, how my dad killed his first archery buck, how I was able to kill the drop time buck. You want to watch these episodes that kind of build that whole story up. So head on over to the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Check it out, please. Uh, give it a watch. Give it a thumbs up. Leave us a comment. I greatly appreciate your support. I hope you're enjoying that show. Um, and that's and that's about it. Oh, one other thing that we should mention. We have a new book from Meat Eater, the Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Survival and Skills, or Wilderness Skills and Survival, I believe is what it's called. I should have this in front of me, sorry. But check it out over at themeateater.com or wherever books are sold. It covers all sorts of different wilderness preparedness, outdoor skills, uh, basically anything you need to know to be handy and capable uh, out in the wild. This book's got you covered, so check that out as well. Whew. That's it. Now, let's get into some really interesting conversations about the late season. We'll kick it off with Neil Doherty, and uh, we'll talk to you when it's all done. Whenever I think about the late season, I actually think, I don't mean this in a weird way, but <laughs> I think about you, Neil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I talked to you a year or two ago about the late season hunting for an article I was working on. I think it was for quality whitetails magazine. Um, I'm not sure, but I think that was the magazine it was for. And I talked to you about some of your different ideas on the late season and something you had mentioned in that conversation, I believe was that, and you can correct me if this is wrong, but I believe you had said that you would, if you had to choose, you would choose hunting in the late season over hunting in the rut. And that stuck with me as kind of profound I guess for number one, is that accurate? Is that quote accurate? Um, before oh, I go, absolutely, one hundred percent. If if you have the ability to work with a piece of ground, or even you know, even if you're not owning the piece, or you you have access to do some work on it, if you have the ability to put some time in, you know, kind of the thinking game and the strategy starts when we start to get through that whole rut mess. And and I, I chuckle is you know the rut everybody they call the rut you, it, it's pretty much just grinding out the time in a tree and sooner or later you know you might be lucky enough for him to run by you or you know the buck you've been thinking about and dreaming about could be three miles away the day that you're out there Saturday morning hunting uh, so it, it's just such a lucky period of time it could work for you or it could just totally blow up in your face it it drives me crazy on the managed properties I work with that to help guys try to to figure out how we're going to get them in the rut because you just need to sit in the tree, you know, and, and kind of hope. But when we get this late season period of time, you know, kind of this whole strategy session and designing the mousetrap of the property and strategic hunting of the piece and, and pressuring and non-pressuring areas, all this stuff can come together and, and start to kind of almost put the deer where you want them to be. And you, you have to have help from Mother Nature, but you can really – start to develop a strategy and in, in, in work an individual buck. And, and you know, if, he, if everything lines up, you can get it done in a couple of days. So for my personal hunting property, you know, I forget about the rut. Yeah, I, would, I would take, you know, we go as late as the middle of December here in New York. This year, a little bit later, December 22nd, we finish up. And I would give up November and just hunt that last four or five days of season. Now, keep in mind, that's after we've had 65 days of hunting. Uh, so the deer are worn down, they're ground down, but, but there's some strategies you can put in place to, uh, you know, to get them out there, especially if you can plant and, and do things like that. 
You're giving us hope. This is good, Neil. <laughs> well, yeah. As I'm saying all the strategy thing, I was still lucky enough to, you know, get it done here in November and, and uh, pleasantly surprised when a big one walked by me and I was able to tag one. So it, it's, it's still nice right. <laughs> to have a, every so often they come marching by and you didn't have to think too hard. It just had to be in the right tree. Uh, so I'm so happy to take the... Uh, take the lucky portion of it but this this is where really i start to groove and, and get a kick out of the hunting is this late season stuff yeah i've I really started to see some of the same things with some of the properties that i've been able to hunt where you know especially in those areas where you can find either low pressure areas within a property or if you actually control the property if you can control the pressure that's one of the things i've found makes such a profound difference to late season success but before we dive into into that or um any one specific aspect you you mentioned a whole bunch of different things there that kind of lead to success during the late season um so i'm kind of curious if we can set the table at the high level what would you say are the the high level ingredients for a perfect or for a great late season hunt and then if you can lay those couple categories out then i'm probably going to want to dive into each of those in more detail but i'm curious at the top what are the categories of things that we need to start thinking about to find that right hunt in the right place all right, so so probably the, the the greatest limiting factor. I'm always thinking of properties and limiting factor. What's going to jack up the program and screw it up, screw up for us? So, the greatest limiting factor for late season is 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 actually not the inventory of bucks. Because I'm always going to trust that bucks typically can. If you're dealing with four or five year olds, they usually are smart enough to get to that point, and you can almost kind of not guarantee they're going to be there come the end of the season, but likely they'll be there. But the greatest limiting factor for late in the year is to have the weather that's going to force them out of their holes that they've been hiding in for, in my case, 60 days of hunting season or other places, uh, to, to pour, you know, force them out and bring them out where they're going to be exposed to the gun or bow or whatever your tool is of late year. So that number one is weather. Uh, and for a lot of us this year, we are we are highly weather dependent this year. Uh, we, we are dealing with warm temperatures, and we'll get into that in detail and, and probably a little bit later on, but... Uh, we need to have some stuff, some temperatures that are going to burn some calories and force them to get out there. Uh, the second thing is we have to be able to control pressure and, uh, and, and try to get in a situation where we we at least know what everybody's doing and how they're playing the chessboard. Um, you know, even if guys are hunting, know what their play is so we can kind of play off of that in a predictable manner. You know, hunt, Bob does this in this corner of the property. We expect the deer to react this way, and, and we kind of know how to play off of him. So, you know, it's not necessarily no hunters in the woods, but understand that they're out there and what the impact is going to be. And then we have to rely on the deer and in the physical makeup of the deer as well. So is that buck still healthy? The rut is a grueling, mean process on a white-tailed buck, especially if there's other age in the neighborhood. He's liable to have, at this point in time, open abscesses from antler wounds and busted up legs and torn shoulders and broken jaws. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we're seeing in photos now, and my customers are killing deer that have just been pounded during the rut. You know, not to mention some hunting issues that can happen as well, but that these deer are, in some cases, worn out, and, and if you know you're dealing with a worn-out deer, that's going to change the way I'm going to react or, or, and try to adjust my hunting strategy versus a deer that's fat and happy on, you know, the last camera you pulled and looking to be in really good shape. Uh, they're going to behave a little bit differently in the late season as well. So all this stuff kind of marries and comes together in, you know, as well as the food sources in your neighborhood. So, you know, knowing what you were able to plant and do the hard work and, 
in May or June in food plot season, the type of food sources you're able to put in the ground and kind of score for late in the year will dictate how that late season hunting is going to be. So all that stuff kind of comes together and, and you juggle those variables to determine whether or not you're going to have some success late in the year or not. So one of the first things you mentioned, Neil, was weather. And yep. that is, I think, you know, a lot of people would agree 100% one of the very most important variables to late season success. And like you mentioned, it's been pretty warm throughout a lot of parts of the country. Yeah. Um, so let's dive into that first. You know, when it comes to the late right. season, what kind of weather are we looking for? Um, and how do we take advantage of that? Yep. So, so you know, I, I'm watching this stuff really closely it, it, to the point of, we finished out the month, and I'll tell you, from my region of the country where I'm, where I'm currently sitting right now, you know, I'm in a, a parking lot in a little bitty town getting ready to guide some, some of the hunters or the client I work for on their late season to hunt their last couple of days of hunting. And I'm tuned into the point that I know that the temperatures for the last 30 days have been 7.7 degrees above normal. And it, it may not sound like a big deal. But the whitetail have had to burn a significant amount of less calories to stay warm. And what that's going to result, and you can see this in the skinny shed, what that's going to result in is we have phytophot contents that are higher than they were last year, the year before, the year before that. So I have deer that are relatively full, they're fat, and they're not it's worn down, or for that matter, they're not even close to where they are on average. Uh, and now... This is a perfect storm of deer not wanting to come to a food plot. You need to have a deer that's kind of worn down a little bit for this late season hunt to come together. And, you know, I, I, four or five years ago, we started looking at this. I really was of the opinion that, hey, it didn't really matter so much that you had a bumper crop of acorns all September, October, and November in your property. If you could get December snows to pile up a little bit or four or five days of below average temperatures, your deer would come to the food plots. And I think... That was, I was on the cusp of kind of understanding what was going on there, but the bottom line is it'll bring them to the plot a little bit, but if they're going to consistently get to the plot, especially in states where they have pretty high hunting pressure, you need to have a deer that's kind of worn down. The fat content is worn down some, and it's, they don't have the luxury of kind of hanging back and not eating for a couple of days. They need to go and, and consume the food in the good locations and, and then head back and, you know, get back to the bush. And, and those circumstances we see a lot of these you know, and I'm not talking about two year old bucks showing up on a food plot parading around or yearling bucks, but I'm talking about the fours and the fives and the seven year olds that are in out there that really know how to play the game. When they're worn down then we see them showing up in the plots quite a bit. And it's not unfortunately it's not a couple of days of weather. So where I personally am and where a lot of us are this year, you're seven, eight, ten degrees above normal for the last thirty days. If you've been paying attention to those kind of things, uh, the fat content's really probably higher than, than what you would hope for on those deer. And if you're looking at the 10 day forecast and going, hey, there's a couple days of a little bit below average temperatures, maybe we get a little bit of snow, uh, what it was likely to take for you to have that significant feeding event that you, you know, call in sick from work and, and, and charge out to the woods, it's probably going to take a good bit of snow covering for three or four days to cover up a lot of those easy access foods and then force them into the, the high concentration foods. Uh, so it's, it's, we're, we're kind of in a tricky position for a lot of people on especially the East Coast, the, kind of the central part of the country this year in terms of whether we're going to get the deer to come out if the weather's going to cooperate for us or not. And we'll get that kind of that mass movement where things are, uh, are a little bit easy on the hunting side. So one of the big things, and this is, you know, 
kind of just re-saying what you said there, but one of the major um, points that I focus on a lot during the late season is my timing and, and, you know, not pressuring those deer at all until timing is just right during the late season. And a massive amount of that correct timing is related to getting this weather event, like you mentioned, that will push these deer out early before dark into some type of food source. Um, and so a lot of my hunting this time of year is doing just what you mentioned, watching the forecast, waiting for that event, and then you know taking off work or whatever to make sure I hunt on that day or whatever it might be. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about those specific conditions, but I want to first what happens if you don't get that? Like what happens if I have a week of vacation or whatever it might be, or a guy has a gun, the gun season is open December 1st through 6th or whatever. And it's 45 or 50 degrees the whole week and no significant event. I mean, what do you do in that type of situation when you, you want to hunt? This is your chance to hunt, but you just don't have those correct weather conditions. Are you of the mind that you say just still don't hunt? Just you have to wait it out, and maybe you only get mm. one hunt the rest of the year. Or would, is there some other option when the weather isn't ideal in the late season? All right, so we're, we've been playing a lot with formulas, and you know, I, I do work with some outfitters, and we're we're trying to balance pressure versus results. Okay, so we've been playing and tweaking these formulas uh, this time of year, late season deer that are not rut driven. Uh, and, and keep in mind too, we're we're not we're saying they're pretty well done with the rut. Uh, if your fawns reach 68, 70 pounds, they're going to come into asterisk. So a lot of those doe fawns can come into asterisk. Those that weren't bred the first time can cycle in later. So while we're all sitting back here saying it's 50 degrees, don't go hunting, it's a small percentage. It might be 10 or 15% of your does aren't currently bred. That could fire up and bring the big guy out at any minute, and you could shoot him on a 60-degree day. So there is a, still a little bit of, of kind of uh, Las Vegas luck ahead of us as a potential. It's not, you know, hey, let's shut the season off and not go. But if we're strictly, you know, forget about that lucky variable of a possible ester, they'll go back to the feeding window. If we have fat, happy deer uh, and we have temperatures that have been running 5, 10 degrees above normal, the frequency of hunt that I'm advising my clients is they can hunt for about two days and they better pull out of the woods and give it about a seven-day rest. Uh, and, and even these are big pieces. These are 500-acre pieces, 1,000-acre pieces. Put a couple days on them and then give them a break to try to keep it as fresh as possible and be extremely strategic like you're talking about in terms of the weather and the wind and, and trying to pick the days when they might be I'll feel a little bit fresher to show up a little bit earlier or, or, or things of that nature. So, you know, the cooler days are the days you're going to try to go out. We're, we're really this time of year limiting our morning hunting pressure just to try to, you know, take one more shift off the fields or one more shift off the properties or slipping out in the evening when we're a little bit more of a concentration and feeding uh, environment. So uh, those are the type of strategies we're doing. In, uh, in our last book we put out, we referred to it as kind of a drone drone hunting. We were kind of taking an analogy out of the military. And, and this time of year is where you, you almost envision the drone is circling. I'm gathering camera footage. I'm, you know, hopefully we're in a state where wireless cameras are available to us. You're getting that wireless input to your cell phone, so you're not putting pressure on your deer, or you're checking your cameras every seven to ten days, you know, middle of the day, total low pressure, trying not to get in the middle of bedding areas, and you're watching and watching, and you're looking for a buck to show some kind of vulnerability. At the same time, you're watching the next 10-day weather forecast. I'm, you know, up at 4 o'clock in the morning every morning looking at the weather forecast. My wife thinks I'm crazy. You have it memorized by now. Well, I'm just trying to see, and hopefully it's going to get cold, and 
Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple good bucks. I'm trying to wear down at our place here. Uh, so you're you're saying, man, I'm just looking for that that change, that weather for, uh, forecast change. It's going to start to set up. We're going to change the schedule a little bit and try to get to the woods. But um, you know, long way around the block on that. It's it's you get you really have to measure the pressure and, and really start to look at things this time of year, and you have to figure out how much pressure you can put on it. On a weather window, unlike we're having right now, where the temperatures are five, ten degrees below normal, we've got blowing snow, we've got blizzard conditions, it's been snow covered for four or five days straight, seven days straight, and the deer getting beat up with wind chills and stuff like that. You can almost grind it, you know, you can grind in some cases grind a, a, a field over and over and over again, uh, even in a situation, say, standing corn or something like that, just putting a ton of pressure on it, and they're just going to keep on coming because they have to. Um, and you can really get a good opportunity that way. Not that you can't get down out of the tree and spook all the deer off the field every night, but if you're sensible about it, try to you know chip away at the corners a little bit, you can get some really good hunting in. But this is not one of those years where you can manhandle a piece of property. Yeah, so I got a I got a quick question, and sorry to interrupt, Mark, but Okay, so we're talking about this late season type of hunting and, you know, they're focusing on the bed to uh, food source pattern, right? So if the weather is not – if the weather may not scream get in the tree stand and sit on this field edge of this this food source or this food plot, are you telling any of your clients to take your stand and get back further in the woods to to catch them in a staging area or maybe a travel route? Yeah, Dan, you know, great, great, great input on that. And and here's where we got to watch our cameras. So if our cameras are showing some good deer, the frequency I'm looking for, let's say we take a seven-day window and, and I have a shooter buck showing up four out of the seven days in front of the camera, I'd say that, that's high frequency. So I'm really pretty pumped about that level of use. Because you got to believe he's coming to the field at other locations as well, not just past your camera. Uh, if he's showing up at 2 or 3 in the morning every time, you know, 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night, four or five hours after dark, I'd probably say he is just hunkered so tight he's just not going to be anywhere even close to that field edge or within 200 yards of it when I can still get, uh, you know, have legal shooting light. If he's an hour after dark, if he's a half hour after dark, he's just on the edge of twilight and, and I'm getting photos like that, then we're going to take a real hard look at it, uh, it, it possibly moving on him. Now, now here's another variable. So most of my clients own ground or they're playing on leases that they have long-term. And, and we have back here in the East a relatively competitive hunting environment. So I may be working with a 300 acre piece of ground and there's, you know, a hundred acres or three or 400 acre pieces that enjoy it. So there's a lot of potential tags and lots of potential hunters in the woods. And one of the things I work with my clients is say, you know, when we're dealing with, with quality deer, deer of age, it's a long chest match and it doesn't have to necessarily end at the conclusion of this season. So when we're growing deer year after year, we get to know them. We might hunt them for two or three years uh, before we finally get a chance to have, you know, the moon and stars line up and we connect with them. But one thing that can change that absolutely is is when my property, and my properties are packed with guys with rifles around the edges right now. They, you know, they're kind of a, a, they're perceived there's a lot of good deer in there and they're, they work our edges hard. If I bump him out of a bedroom, uh, one, he's definitely not showing up the food plot because I came too close to him. And two, if I move him too far, he's dead. Uh, because I'm, you know, the deer is within three, four hundred yards of a property line. If he skips across that thing, he's just not going to get back. 
So you do have to run. You have to know your neighborhood and know what you can get away with. And in some cases, believe it or not, I've had years where I say, you know what, guys, uh, he's going to be bigger next year. And that can be a very difficult scenario if you're looking at five days left in the season going, oh, man, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to fold up my tent and, and, and give up on this year. But sometimes if you're really trying to, to cultivate that one buck and, and you want to have them for another year of playing chess, you, sometimes you have to back off them and just say it's just not going to happen this year. And I've done it a bunch and, and swallowed the tags, and these are our pieces that you manage. Now, if you're in a public land hunt, if you're in a permission-to-hunt situation, you don't know what your access is, a totally different scenario. Go for it. You know, go in and try to make it happen. But but I err on the side of caution. I just don't want to bump these deer or pressure these deer. And, and right now, with the weather conditions the way that they are, for that matter, it's it's not even so much as it's just warmer this year. It's If you bump a five-year-old buck or a six-year-old buck now post-breeding season when he's not goofy, if you bump him, he's going to be significantly changing his patterns for, you know, the next five to seven days. Not saying he's not going to kill him the next day, but but he's just not going to tolerate that pat, that pressure too well. And and especially get out of the Midwest and go to areas with a little bit more hunting pressure, you know, those deer are going to affect and, and change quite a bit. And I'm real reluctant to, to bounce them or, or get too close to them. So I, I like your idea, uh, but I just would like to try to make sure we're going to, one, give that bedding area a little bit of room, and then just two, know if we're, we're really willing to pressure and maybe maybe run the risk of running them off the property and not seeing them again. It's a fine line you have to walk, isn't it? It's it's kind of a tightrope, yeah. And I, I probably err on the side of caution too much, but you know, uh, I'm, I'm we're we're it, let's you know we're killing deer that are five, six, seven years of age uh, in in properties that one they're too small to typically do that, and two we're in areas of the country where there's really high hunting pressure, so. Um, we have to be real cautious in those areas to get that kind of uh, those kind of results. So, so Neil, one of the important distinctions I think you made was the difference between hunting on a scenario where you have control of the property, like a lease, or you own the ground, versus being on public or private, and how different those two scenarios are, and how different your mindset needs to be. Um, and I'm in one of the situations similar to the latter, where I have permission on a piece of private ground, but other people can hunt it. And I've got the shotgun season here opening in Iowa in four days. I know a lot of people are going to be hunting it. So it does require a little bit more of the aggressive tactics, maybe like Dan mentioned or something totally different. Um, but it's just a really important point that I want to emphasize to everyone out there is that, you know, keep in mind what your specific scenario might mean and why you might want to be a little bit more aggressive versus a little more passive and, and careful. If you have that control, like you mentioned, Neil, I think erring on the side of caution is definitely the way to go. Um, but back to something we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, when it comes to this weather, these conditions that help you know when to go in and strike, like you mentioned, I, I love that drone strike analogy, by the way, I've borrowed that. I really like that one. Um, what, <laughs> How much how much of a temperature drop or how much snow on the ground do you believe you need to trigger a significant feeding event? All right, so here here's what I've kind of and every year this time of year we're getting our first snow in this part of the world. So we have the first snow covering, and I'll get a, a million texts from my clients that are out saying, "Oh, yeah, it's going to be a great morning this morning." And they all get back at eleven o'clock and say, "We didn't see a deer." Uh, the first snows of the year. Generally, outside of the route, I'm finding deer to be incredibly paranoid and not moving at all. Uh, and, you know, you've got to take it from their perspective. They've been probably being ground down a little bit with hunting season. Now they're incredibly exposed. 
So I'm not seeing a lot of good movement the first snow. Give it about 36 hours worth of snow covering, and, you know, it's all systems normal, and they're right back doing what they do. So I'm not a big fan of the first day of the snow, but a day and a half after that first snow, I'm really starting to look at it. Temperature-wise, we're just looking at normal temperatures. I think you boil down to if it's normal temperatures or below, and I like to get 10, 15 degrees below normal with some wind, I mean, some raw stuff where it's going to beat you up in the tree. Uh, those are the kind of temperatures where we're, we're getting good deer to show up. And and it's not, oftentimes it's not just a, a quick little front blows through. And you can certainly play the game of hunting fronts, the deer feeding during the front, post front, after the front, that kind of thing. But what we're talking about here is the weather conditions that kind of force them to feed during daylight hours. And there's a scenario where it's cold and the deer are burning too much energy to feed at night when the nighttime temperatures are plummeting and you got lots of wind and snow. Keep in mind, you know, when a deer is laying down and it closes the vents in its body, the vents being its it's kind of its groin area and its armpits, and, and those are the areas where it loses the vast majority of the heat. It can lay down for two or three days or, you know, a couple of days and burn less calories than it can walking out to the cornfield to try to consume food. So uh, it, they will go for that day or two lay down if they have to, but at some point they really start to get ginned up to go to food if that weather is, again, 5, 10 degrees below normal. And whatever your normal might be, I've got clients that say, you know, 45 degrees is normal for them. So when it's 35 degrees, you know, we're in that perfect storm. In my part of the world, this time of year, I'm typically looking at temperatures, you know, below 20 degrees, preferably in the low to mid-teens at night and, and just kind of foul and nasty. And that type of scenario is going to trigger deer and bring them in. I'll give you a, a quick little story from last year. So last year we had that bumper crop of acorns that everybody talks about. They're like marbles on the forest floor. And, and I couldn't buy a deer to come to the cornfields or any of the brassica plots. I mean, you guys getting some camera photos, but camera photos are about 25% of what they usually are. We're having, you know, deer census meetings at camp going, hey, geez, do we even want to shoot those this year? We're not seeing anything. Where have all the deer gone? So, you know, the neighbors are all in panic. We're kind of trying not to be seasoned and say, you know, it's just a blip with acorns, but in the back of our mind going, where have all the deer gone? And it's a terrible bow season, eat tag. You know, it's, there's no chance of shooting anything big for a decent. Uh, even the luck of the ride, it doesn't happen. Roll around to this late season window. We're into December of last year. The muzzleloader season kicks in. That's, that's mid-December. And finally, the temperatures drop, and we picked up 12 inches of snow, uh, I waited a day and a half. I actually canceled a couple road trips, got back home. And, and within three days of that snow being on the ground, the property went from having five or six deer showing up on the standing cornfield. My granted pressure had been low to now there's eight or nine bucks showing up with 15 to 20 does in the field is full and there's age there. You know, I was able to tag a great buck uh, that, that late season window. The next night went back and tagged a bear. And then the, then the temperatures changed. And the snow melted, and it went right back to four, five, six deer in the food plot. Just, you know, primarily fawns, and it was just a social thing. They went to the field to kind of hang out, dance around a little bit, but they weren't going for the work of feeding. And it was, it, in that case, it took that eight, ten inches of snow, that little weather event, and it was literally a three or four day weather event, and then as soon as it melted, it was over. And I watched, of course, the cameras postseason. And for that matter, that entire year, because they were so full of fat from the acorn crop that we had, it took significant snows in February to put them in the corn. 
Uh, and, you know, at mild weathers that we had, even January, February, no one's been in the woods for a month and a half. The deer still weren't hitting those fields the way that I would have expected them to. They were just, you know, obviously in really good body condition. And that goes back, you know, we were talking about body condition before. Uh, my clients, on a whole, when we see a deer that's got a significant limp or, you know, it's got some kind of issue going on right now from fighting or other things, uh, we're batting probably about 95% to harvest that deer on a energy-packed food source like a carbohydrate, like corn or dried soybeans, things like that. We're batting probably 95% to harvest that deer in the next couple weeks. And, and they're, when they're kind of getting beat up and they're trying to repair their body, we do extremely well uh, harvesting those deer, you know, uh, when, when they get to that point. Uh, it's... it's uh, I've had two or three of them that showed up just in the, in the last couple of days with customers that, you know, Buck, we've been chasing for two or three years, and then finally we got him. And oh, by the way, you know, somebody poked an antler in his rear end, and uh, and he was a little bit beat up, and finally he showed up during daylight hours. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever, and you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here and it solves a real problem, Okay. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill, will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. All right, next we've got Don Higgins. 
I would love to hear from you, Dunt, to kick things off here. What do you believe is the single most important thing that someone needs to keep in mind during the late season? What's the first and foremost thing that everybody needs to keep first firsthand thinking about as they start hunting these final weeks? Well, you know, it's ironic. When I wrote my first book 10 years ago, after I'd shot that buck, uh, the 214-inch buck we were just talking about, a short time later I wrote my first book. And when I talk about the late season in that first book, I kind of downplayed it as one of the worst times of the season to to shoot a mature buck. But in the years that have passed, I've, I've totally changed my mind 180 degrees. Now I believe that the late season is the very best time of the year to to kill a mature buck on purpose. But the key is you, you've got to you've got to have a good food source and, and you've got to have an undisturbed bedding location. If you got those two together, and then you've got it made because there's there's very likely to be a mature buck there. And then you just got to wait for the. It's about timing. You it's, you need the worst weather possible. The worse the weather gets, the better your odds. So, you know, I've got a couple different farms that I manage and uh, where I'm allowed to plant food plots and things like that. And on both those farms, you know, I've got my stands in place. I've got the food plots in place. I've stayed out of the bedding cover all fall, and I'm just waiting. I'm just biding my time waiting on the perfect opportunity. And whenever the temperature, you know, gets down around zero at night or single digits during the day as a high, when it does that for a few days, you can just you can count on the bucks, on every deer in the woods. Really, it doesn't matter if he's a mature buck or yearling buck or a doe. Under those conditions, they're going to be on their feet in the afternoon headed to that food, and they're more than likely going to get there way before dark. And you know, I, I kind of set the table throughout the entire year by planting those food plots, by staying out of those bedding areas. But then when the time's right, I get into those stands, and you can you can kill you know, the biggest buck in the woods on purpose year after year after year that way. Yeah. I th- so I want to, I want to dive into kind of each of those different things you listed out there. Um, but before that, I want to touch on a topic that I think is a lot, is on the minds of a lot of people right now, because we talk about these exact th- same things you listed out here and the importance of timing and waiting for those weather conditions that can get those big deer on their feet. But for like me here in Michigan, we're dealing with, you know, high 40, 40 degree temperatures and, and none of that really great, cold, nasty weather that we'd want is in the forecast for the rest of the year, really, um, from what we're seeing. And so there's a lot of people worried, you know, are we going to get that late season weather we need to get a big buck on his feet? So my question for you, Don, is let's say you like you have all these things set, you have the food plots, you've got the stands, you've stayed out, you've done everything right, you're waiting for the right moment for that right weather. What do you do if that correct weather never comes? Are you just going to just not hunt, or do you have a backup plan? Well, I I don't hunt very often, that's for sure, because I'm hunting the, the biggest bucks I can find, and a lot of times that means that uh, I'm not looking at things from just a one-season perspective. I'm looking to kill that deer, and if it happens this season, great. But I don't want to go in and tip him off when the conditions aren't right. Next year, he could be 20 inches bigger. And uh, if you've educated him, you've just made him, you know, three times as hard to kill. So a lot of times, you know, if the weather isn't perfect, I'll hunt secondary locations. I will stay out of my prime locations. 
and uh, you know I might watch a, a feeding area from a distance just to see if if there happens to be a buck coming out before dark and one that I'd want to target, which is very very rare for that to happen. But I'm not one just to sit home either. I'm, I've got to be out there doing something. So I just as soon sit back and watch from a distance and, and see if maybe you, there's a buck coming out that that I wouldn't expect, you know, under the, those conditions. But, you know, mature bucks are unpredictable. Yeah. So is, is a lot of your time then um, obviously based around food sources, but are you on top of the food source on a field edge or are you, do you hunt back in the timber at all? Well, I like to be as close to the bedding area as possible uh, without spooking the deer. It gets kind of tough in the late season, you know, when the foliage is gone and you got snow on the ground where the deer can see you getting into your stand from a long ways off. Um, but a lot of times the, the bedding cover that I'm hunting is it comes right up to the edge of the food plot. So I'm within 50 yards or so of the edge of the food, but I'm still, you know, right on the edge of the bedding cover as well. So can you can you elaborate on those two pieces right there? Um, first, I guess let's start with the food source. Can you tell us, you know, what are your ideal food sources during the late season? Um, could you maybe tell us about the types you could plant, and then maybe any types of food sources that are found, you know, naturally otherwise? Well, by far my favorite food plot is soybeans, and the worse the weather gets, the better those soybeans are. They just they'll, they'll draw deer like a magnet. Um, and you're you're using the the grain, actually the soybean grain, to attract those deer rather than than the forage or anything like that. Uh, I also like to mix it up, but just to have uh, some things, you know, for diversity: uh, turnips, sugar beets, those kind of mixes. Uh, you know, just to give the deer something besides soybeans. Corn, something I haven't put much effort into, simply because it's it's an expensive crop to grow and get a, a good crop and just takes a, a lot more cash outlay and equipment that other food plots don't. So, uh, and soybeans, I feel attract deer better than corn anyway, especially during that, uh, those brutal cold conditions. As far as natural type browse, you know, just anything like persimmons or, or apples, late hanging apples that, you know, might still be around just, you want you want as much diversity as as possible, but but a big old plot of soybeans in the middle of that it will do the trick. Yeah. So so question about soybeans. Uh, one of the knocks against planting soybeans for food plots is that they can be browsed under browsed over very quickly in the summer. If you've got a small plot of beans, it's easily to be to just get it slammed by deer right away and, and knock the whole thing out. Um, so how do you go about? Uh, attacking that issue do you just plant very large soybean fields or do you use anything like a food plot fence or anything to keep the deer out of it until late season well the, the deer population where i'm at has never been to the point where i had a an issue with them wiping out a food plot so i just make my plots as big as as i possibly can uh and they're gonna where they come out into the plot you know the corners or whatever they're gonna browse it down some there but I've never really had to, had an issue like some guys have where, where they really browse it down to nothing. So I've never had to use electric fences or anything like that, although I've heard good reports from guys that have. Okay. Is there a minimum size do you think that most people should think about that would be kind of the, the smallest you want to go? Or am I okay with trying to put together a half acre, quarter acre, little honey hole soybean plot? 
In, in most parts of the country, if there's a, a decent deer population at all, you're going to need at least an acre. And three acres would be even better. Okay. Yeah, I know a lot of guys, when they think about food plots, they're thinking about something the size of a garden or a small yard or something like that. And I'm, I'm usually thinking in terms of a minimum of an acre. Okay. And then I guess my final question I've got about your food plot tactics here. Um, when you're designing these food plots, are you just going with whatever openings you have, or are you keeping in mind a specific type of shape to the food plots to make it more conducive to hunting in any way? Um, what's your thought process there? Well, I'm usually going with what uh, what the land affords me as far as the terrain. Um, I think you can overthink things and try to make it a, a lot hard, harder and more difficult than it really is. I would rather have, you know, if you had, say, three or four acres that could be put in a food plot rather than try to make it some weird shape that's going to force the deer to do this and do that. I'd rather have the whole thing in food and attract more deer to the spot. Okay. All right. Interesting. Just kind, of, kind of my opinion. I mean, I understand some of these philosophies, but uh, I think a lot of that stuff is made to sell articles more than it is to, to kill bucks. So I just, I don't buy into a lot of the things that, uh, that that some people promote i think just get as much food out there as possible and the deer are going to be there fair enough so then the second piece of the equation that we talked about the cover um you know what should somebody looking be looking for when it comes to quality late season cover what does that look like well it's extremely thick it's, it's also got some thermal cover uh cedars pines a lot of the oak species, well, not a lot of them, but some oak species will hold their leaves in the winter. Pen oaks, sawtooth oaks, shingle oaks, those species will hold their leaves all winter long and provide, you know, some wind and thermal cover for the deer. But the main thing is you you want it thick, but you you want it free of human intrusion. Uh, and that goes for the entire year. You don't want to be stomping in your late-season bedding area in, in October and, and ruin it months before you're, you're planning to hunt it. Uh, that freedom of human intrusion is probably the most important thing, even more so than the type of uh, plants and and the, the lay of the terrain and everything. So you're a big believer in the the sanctuary theory, right? Oh, absolutely. Can you absolutely? Can you tell us a little more in general why you think that having a sanctuary is important for the the whole year, really? Well, if you just think of like a say a state park or something that uh, is near your home that you may be familiar with, where you know you can drive through there any time of the day and and see deer up browsing and and walking about freely with with uh, they're not alarmed or anything. In most of the cases, the only thing that sets that particular cover apart from anything surrounding it is just human intrusion or lack thereof, and. You know, nothing has been done in particular to make the the bedding cover inside that state park any better than the cover outside, but it's the freedom of human intrusion is why the deer are there and why they're so comfortable there. And if you can recreate that even on a smaller scale and on top of that add better cover, well, then then you've really got it made. Are you avoiding morning sits during the late season completely? Yep, definitely, just like October. The only time I hunt mornings is in November. Okay. Now, again, I'm 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 trying to <laughs> trying to help my buddy Dan out here, right? Um, <laughs> I, I just want to keep going back to this example. Okay, so Dan 
doesn't know where the sanctuary is, what kind of scouting techniques can he employ or anyone in a similar situation employ at this time of year to try to figure out you know, where this buck might be? Because inherently, right, there's the risk of spooking that deer. And, and now after all this pressure, if you do push this deer a couple more times, you might never get that one or two chances that you might get. So is there anything you can do to, to learn or figure this out um, safely without risking too much uh, you know, of spooking that deer? Yeah, it's a matter of learning the property you're on, and it's going to take a few years. But once you've got your property figured out, you're going to know where that buck's going to be even before he's even born. You're going to know today, five years from now, where a mature buck is going to be on your property five years from now, where he's going to be just based on you know hunting pressure and the terrain and things like that. So rather than – I think a lot of, of hunters – are always a step behind the deer. They're always trying to figure out what the deer are doing. And I learned a long time ago that instead of being a step behind the deer, you need to be a step ahead of them. In other words, in October, I know where the deer's going to be, the bucks are going to be in November, and where I need to be sitting in November. In November, I, I know where I'm going to need to be in December and January. So I think in, instead of playing you know, a step behind the deer, trying to figure out what they're doing today, you need to figure out what they're going to do tomorrow and be ready for them when they do it. So it's really it's learning those typical patterns that deer are going to are going to follow based on the terrain and based on the habitat, and then making um, you know educated assumptions based on what you know historically these deer do. Yeah, because unless something major changes on a property, they're going to be doing the same thing year after year after year. Another piece of this pie that we haven't touched on yet, but I, I imagine factors to some degree into what you're doing this time of year is trail cameras. Um, are you using trail cameras during the late season to help you, you know, fine tune any of these, you know, assumptions and, and ideas you have, or, you know, are you avoiding them this time of year? No, I r- start running trail cameras about the 1st of July every year and run them until the bucks shed their antlers in February or March. This time of the year, what I'm doing is I've got the trail cameras on food sources, and you know, about every 10 days or so, I'll check them just to see if a new buck might have showed up that that wasn't there earlier, and uh, just kind of keep tabs on, on what per- individual bucks are using particular food plots. Yeah, how are you checking those cameras, and um, what time of day? I'm doing it in the middle of the day, and I'm doing it on an ATV. I just ride right up to the edge of the food plot. I leave the thing running. And I don't even try to be quiet, but I avoid the bedding cover, you know, as much as possible. I come in from a, a different direction than from the bedding cover. Uh, but being on that ATV, those deer hear you coming, and they're not busting out like if you would sneak in there and happen to bust something. It'd be a whole lot more stressful on them than, than that ATV is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that that makes sense. You could use a tractor or anything, really. Truck. Yep, just as long as they don't associate with a hunter, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So uh, kind of moving on to a couple of these other slight tactical offshoots, is there anything else when it comes to calling or scents or any of these things that are relatively aggressive that people typically use during the rut? Is there ever a use case for calls, decoys, scents, anything like that during the late season? You know, years ago, I had a, a situation where we had a, a blizzard blow in, and, and all the local deer during that blizzard holed up in one thicket, 
and, and I snuck into that thicket three different days with rattling antlers, and each time I rattled in at least one, if not two, mature bucks. And I never did get one killed for various reasons. Um, my fault, really. But So I, I know those tactics can work during the late season, but uh, the, the longer I've hunted, the, the more I've realized that a, a mature buck is is an animal that's on edge all the time anyway. And the last thing I want to do is put him more on edge by making a sound or, or a scent to try to attract him because I think he's, he's so alert anyway that you just make him hyper alert when you do that. And the odds in the late season especially where just one little creak from your bow or anything can send him, you know, run into the next county. I, I don't want to put him on, on alert any more than he already is. So I avoid those tactics, even though I have no doubt they can work. Okay. All right. Dan, what do you, what do you think about this? Do you have any other questions for Don to, to help make sure you kill a deer here in a couple of weeks? Cause I really want you to kill one. <laughs> <laughs> what is something I may be overlooking or anybody could be overlooking, uh, for late season, any like stati- like, uh, tactics or strategies? Well, I think the main thing is they is most people try to do the same thing during the late season that they've done, you know, basically all season. They they get all hung up on sign for one thing, and you know I've hunted more than one mature buck that the deer were herded up except the mature buck wasn't with the herd. He might have fed in this very same field with the herd, but the herd came from one direction and he would come from a totally different because he wasn't bedding with them. So I think you got to keep that in mind that these mature bucks, even though the late season, that bad weather can can tip the odds your way just a little more than, than what they were, they're still survival experts and, and they're not going to take chances that they don't have to take. So you just got to kind of uh, always go into it with an open mind and not expect a mature buck to be doing what the rest of the herd's doing. Because he's he doesn't do that at the beginning of the season. He doesn't do that during the rut, and he's not going to do it during the late season a lot of times. Okay, so we heard from Neil out in New York. Then it was Don Higgins in Illinois. Now we're going to shift south to Will Brantley, who's over in Kentucky, does some hunting in Tennessee and other southern states as well. Here's a southern perspective on the late season. What's the Will Brantley late season uh, recipe? How do you approach it? Well, you know, it's, it's not, um, you know, for, for one, I, I personally, um, haven't hunted the late season just a ton because we're in a, a one buck state in Kentucky. And, uh, most years, fortunately I've, I've killed my buck by the late season. Um, but the last few years, uh, you know, I mentioned my buddy miles who's, who's come in and, and, uh, hunted late season with us here. Well, gosh, he's been coming in six or seven years in a row now. Um, and, uh, and he's killed three good bucks here in, in the past. Uh, he, he killed two this year. He killed one in Tennessee and, and one in Kentucky and, uh, and killed a good one, uh, in Kentucky last year. And that was, a you know, both of those were, were mid December hunts and kind of after the, after, you know, definitely after our peak of the rut, but still when some things were, were going on, I still think there were a few, uh, you know, a few does maybe coming into heat and definitely some bucks interested. But I, I think the, the big takeaway from, from the good deer that, that he's killed just in the past couple of years during the late season 
has, has definitely been, uh, you know, probably even more of a hyper focus on some of the things that we were talking about earlier about your stand access and, um, you know, and choosing the conditions and things like that. And, um, the, the deer that miles killed with us last year, um, was in a stand. Uh, I, I knew, um, you know, about where this deer was bedding. He was coming out of a, a pretty big woods area with a lot of cutover stuff. I, I knew the deer was bedding in that area somewhere. And, and we'd hunted this deer pretty much all season from the early season through the rut, uh, around, this one particular food plot and, and had gotten a lot of pictures of him, but I had a stand set in this bedding area and, um, we avoided it all season mainly because there was no way to drive a four wheeler into it to get somebody out of it. And, um, there's really no way to sneak into it of a morning without, you know, you may get in there without bumping a deer, but you may not. But, um, you know, I, I knew after our gun season, this deer was still alive and, uh, you know, and so we, Miles and I kind of went for broke. I said, you know, hey, we're going to put you, uh, we're going to put you in this stand. We may spook the deer before you get a shot at him, but, you know, we've only got a few days of the season left, so this is where we're going to go. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a little mast uh, left in this, in this area, but more importantly, I think it was just right on the, uh, right on the edge of uh, where this buck was bedding and, and kind of between where he was, uh, you know, where he was bedding and feeding all year long. And I mean, it wasn't, wasn't rocket science on picking the spot, but it was, uh, you know, it was kind of that last minute go for broke, uh, approach. And, um, he killed that deer his, his first evening in that stand. So, um, this year was, uh, was a little different. Um, you know, he, he, he killed his buck, you know, chasing does in a food plot right before dark, uh, out of a, out of a box blind. And the, and the buck that he killed this year was, um, was a deer that, gosh, we had a ton of pictures of him two years ago. And then he just sort of disappeared and we he got killed. Um, he was a real tall, tight rack, uh, eight point a couple of years ago. We, we named him uptight actually. I, I, I hate naming deer, but this one just begged for a name. So, <laughs> Um, and, uh, and then I was out of town on a hunt and Michelle was pulling trail camera cards and got a picture of this deer and man, he'd gotten pretty, uh, pretty cool and growing a bunch of kickers and things around his bases and just sort of showed back up around, like I say, around Thanksgiving and was sort of hanging around our food plots. And I, I assume, um, probably cause we had a couple of family groups of does around there and, you know, he, he showed up in daylight and miles killed him. So um you know good good food sources and and good stand setups i don't think my strategy would change a whole lot in the late season uh versus any other time of year other than i might get a little more aggressive on some of the places that i you know that i'm gonna sit or you know try to access yeah yeah it's an interesting point because i feel at least for me there's there's two times of year when i feel like it makes sense to to go for the home run to take that risky aggressive move it's it's either the rut because you've got this uh-huh. disproportionate chance that deer are going to be a little bit off their game they're gonna be a little bit um i don't want to say stupider or something like that but you've got a little bit more of a chance of them making a mistake and uh-huh. so it makes sense to kind of go for the home run during the rut and then and then to your point this time of year the late season because what do you have to lose right the season's going to end anyways yeah. um might as well give it a shot and um it's interesting that that worked out for you guys and that kind of worked out 
my hunt this this bucket killed in Michigan. It, I he showed up in daylight that morning. I, I saw him from a long distance away. I realized, okay, I have to get in there and hunt right there tonight. But the wind was pretty darn lousy for it. It was I would uh-huh. never I would never hunt this area with that wind. But I said, well, it's it's December. He's here this this one day. He's not consistent at all. Um, he's been like once every couple weeks, kind of dropping in. Um, I have to I have to strike. It's kind of now or never. Yeah. And so I tried yeah. to find a way to to take a risky situation, minimize the risk as much as I possibly could, but just went in knowing like, Hey, there's a 50, 50 chance. It's either I'm going to blow everything out here or I'm going to kill him. But sometimes you have to, you have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have the confidence to, you know, Hey, uh, all the, all the pieces are here to tell me that there's a pretty good chance he's going to come by this afternoon. Now, you know, he, I may spook him, but you know, like I say, you've, uh, (laughs) you don't have many, many chances left. Um, by this point in the season, so you've got to try. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, you mentioned those two things. Sometimes you're more aggressive and you, you're smart about your stand sites, and then you got to be hunting the right food. Um, what what kind of late season food sources are worth keying in on in the places that you hunt? Tennessee, Kentucky, um, whether it be you know planted crops or native forage. What do you guys really focus on this time of year? Well, so far as native stuff. Um, you know, uh, mast is, is, is still important at this time uh, of the season. Now, we had kind of a spotty mast crop here. It was really, really one of the best mast crops I, I think you can get to hunt and that some trees were just dropping like crazy and others had nothing. So, you know, if you could find a really good white oak that was dropping, uh, you were going to see some deer under it. But usually by this point in the season, you know, most of the white oaks have been pretty well cleaned up. But we uh, we have a lot of different red oak species and um, although they're not as preferable to deer, uh, they, they still eat them and they definitely eat them late in the season. And, and what, what I find around here anyway, is that on a lot of the oak ridges, uh, the, the red oaks will tend to grow right on the very tops of them. You know, I guess where the, the soil or whatever it is, isn't quite as good as what I've been told anyway. And, uh, you'll get a lot of deer action, um, cleaning those things up. Some of the big post oak acorns and things like that. So they, they definitely hit those, um, if you can, if you can find them, and and I mean again, uh, hunting mast, it's um, <laughs> sometimes you you walk past a bunch of trees, and there seem to be acorns laying everywhere on the ground, and then you get to one particular tree that they're hitting, and that doesn't look any different than any of the others. I can't tell any difference in the nuts, but for whatever reason, there's that one that they like, and um, we you know we we were hunting in in Tennessee the other day and there was a there was a red oak tree like that that for whatever reason the deer were hammering it and walking past 15 other red oaks that looked just like it to get to it so um so that's a that's a big one um you know we still have some green stuff um growing pretty much year round around here you know there'll be um different little pieces of uh you know forbs and and native vegetation and things like that and and deer are always gonna gonna nibble on that stuff and from a food plot perspective i mean i plant most of my food plots are a blend of uh ladino clover chicory and oats um i do plant some brassicas and a lot of times they won't even eat them around here until after the season goes out. We usually just don't get weather cold enough to, to really, uh, to, to make brassicas that attractive. I mean, I, I have had some brassica plots that were hit pretty hard, but, um, I've got one that 
that I planted and I walked through it the other day and they're turnips the size of softballs just laying there on the ground and it doesn't look like they've been touched. <laughs> they hit the they hit the greens early, you know, when they're first coming up and, mm-hmm. and you actually can get some pretty good early season hunting over them. But then through the course of deer season, they just they just don't mess with them a whole lot. So it makes a really pretty food plot, but they just don't <laughs> eat it a whole lot. Yeah. So um, the clover, the chicory, and the oats, I mean, they, in this at this latitude, they are green just almost year-round. I mean, if we get a really deep freeze, you know, late, which which we usually will. I mean, they'll go dormant for a while, um, but for most of deer season, they're going to be pretty green, and uh, and the deer are going to eat that stuff. I mean, if you can get any really anything that's that's green like that, um, they're going to be on. And then of course your, you know, your harvested grain fields, your your cut corn fields, and your and your bean fields and things are going to nibble around in those. And we get a lot of our. Um, a lot of our farmers will do a cover crop of some sort, um, usually wheat, sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes rye. Uh, every now and then some of the organic farmers will, will drill oats into a field. Uh, daikon radishes, you'll get some of those. But, um, you know, any of those any of those pit crop fields that have had a, a cover crop, especially with a cereal grain, are going to have a lot of deer on them this time of year. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely seen similar things up here in Michigan. Um, now, now one thing that is different, I imagine, we talked about how, you know, there's this care- careful balancing act we have to make all throughout the season between when do you strike, when do you get aggressive versus when do you play it a little more safe and maybe observe or, or maybe don't hunt some days. And during the late season, so much of what I'm doing up here in Michigan usually or, or anywhere in the upper Great Lakes maybe Wisconsin, Minnesota is, is keying in on certain weather events that really push deer out to feed. So like a big snowstorm mm-hmm. coming through or like Arctic temperature, something really extreme like that can really get deer, especially that mature buck that maybe wasn't moving in daylight at all. That might finally get them up and moving. So when I see something like that come through, I, I mark it on the calendar, you know, got to hunt on that yeah. day. Um, yeah. But somewhere like Kentucky or Tennessee, that's kind of mid country. Uh, you probably don't get big snow events like that. You probably don't get those big Arctic temperature events as often, at least. Um, so, so correct me if I'm wrong, but if that's the case, what do you key in on as far as weather factors or anything like that to, to kind of guide you during the late season? Well, I still like to look for cold fronts. Um, you know, I, I like to hunt, you know, in the, if if I can catch a, a an afternoon when a cold front is is just about to pass through, when it's you know the temperature's falling and it's kind of a steady drizzle um, before the wind really kicks up, I mean I, I I seem to always see deer on their feet during those conditions. Really, regardless of the, whether it's the early season or the very last day, those conditions seem to put deer on their feet around here. Uh, and then um, in the late season, in particular, I think those post-frontal high-pressure days when it's, you know, the, the sun's bright and it's cold and still and there's a heavy frost, like um, those days, I mean, you, you, you almost always can, can count on, you know, pretty consistent deer movement. And, uh, you know, man, besides that, um, late in the season, I mean, the, the temperature and, and the stage of a cold front aside, um, I, I like sunshine. Um, you know, we, our, our winters are, especially this year, like 
we get a lot of days where it's 45 degrees and drizzling rain. And it just seems like it is like that, you know, for days on end in the, in the wintertime in this part of the world. And it gets muddy and sloppy and all of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the sunny days, um, the, the clear sunny days, I just, I don't know. I, I like to go outside on days like that. And it just seems like wildlife, you know, they just as a rule, they take advantage of, of weather like that when the norm has been kind of cloudy, gloomy, you know, just just kind of bland weather. So sunny afternoons in the late season, you know, I, I can't I haven't documented that or anything, but it's just one of those things that yeah, I do seem to see more deer on their feet when I'm out and about, you know, um, doing my thing. So, uh, th- those are the conditions that, that I kind of like to look for, at least this time of year. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, um, I feel like I've heard similar things too. And, and even, I think lots of times you'll get those nice sunny days tend to come with that post front high pressure system. Right. Um, so you oh, kind of no get those, no those coinciding factors that all of a sudden make it especially good. So when you get that, yeah. those are, that's another one of those, check it on the calendar, got to make it happen kind of day if you have the flexibility. Um, I feel yeah. like late season especially is, and it's, it's important all year round, I guess, early season and late season maybe more so. But it's if you can, there's going to be a handful of special days each year that are going to be just a, just a notch or two above all the other days because of some mm-hmm. kind of system moving through. And if mm-hmm. you can find a way to have the flexibility to, to make sure you're there on those couple few special days, not saying that they all, it's always going to work out. It's not not saying that you're not going to kill a deer on a, on a random day that all the factors aren't aligned. But it just seems to be that if you can take advantage of those few special ones, you're going to just put yourself in a little better position. That's that's worth doing if you can. Oh um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Sometimes you some days you get in a tree and you just know things feel right yeah you know yeah i love i i have a totally different physical feeling on those days like it's usually when i'm getting things ready at the house doing my final prep loading the truck whatever it might be on the days where you just have that feeling in your gut like it's a kill day where you just know everything's mm-hmm. lined up that's one of my favorite things all year round as far oh, yeah. as like hunting like you just know when those special days are there i don't know the sense of anticipation excitement is just it's turned up to 11 on the dial and I live for that. (laughs) (laughs) So, so all this stuff's great. And it's, it's the, the knowledge is so important when it comes to hunting all year round, of course, but late season, especially. Um, but I think sometimes the toughest thing is just staying motivated, you know, after a long hunting season, you're tired, you're worn out. Maybe things have been going bad. Um, it's cold. You're, recovering from eating turkey and ham and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of stuffing and mashed potatoes. It can be kind of tough to pull yourself back out there. Do you have any kind of final parting words of wisdom as far as that side of things um, when it comes to the late season and just keeping after it? Well, it's it's okay to be comfortable when you're deer hunting. Um, you know, yeah. There's some really good clothing out there made that, uh, that helps keep you warm, but even with the very best stuff on, uh, sitting in a little bitty lock on stand when it's in the teens is, is tough. Um, you know, it's, uh, sometimes it's necessary, but, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with being in a ground blind with a buddy heater or being in a box blind with a buddy heater and, mm-hmm. and keeping warm. Um, you know, I, when I'm hunting, 
during the rut or, or any time that I need to, you know, to put time in the stand that I, that I know I may be sitting there a while. Uh, I always bring a thermos of coffee. Um, maybe, uh, it's spooked a deer before, but I can't really think of an instance where I'm like, yep, that deer spooked because I was drinking coffee. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, so I, I bring a thermos of coffee. It helps pack the, pass the time. I, I bring plenty of snacks, and I and I read like crazy on the stand. Um, I'm um, I, I'm not a fan of playing on my phone a whole lot when I'm in the tree. I mean, I, I do same as everybody else. I'm checking emails and Facebook and all that crap. But um, you know, it's uh, phone batteries die quickly uh, this time of year. So so there's that part of it, and. Uh, you know, you start scrolling through and a video plays, whatever, like it can really get you distracted. But yeah. um, there's something about a paperback book and, and I pick my books carefully. You know, I definitely want to get something that I want to read, but I've got to get a book that I need to be sure that I can quickly slide it into a jacket pocket or <laughs> yeah. a hip pocket or something like that. And, and like Michelle and I are really, we both read a ton in the stand, um, but we're really careful about which books we pick. We don't pick hardback books because you know if you happen to drop one out of the tree it's going to make a lot of noise but like small paperback books that you can slip into a pocket quickly um you know and you can sit there you can read a little bit you can cast your eyes up you know twice a page and just kind of check around and, and it actually keeps you pretty still to have a book on your lap and just turning the pages with your thumb in a way that you know even messing with a phone you're moving around a little bit and there's a few more distractions involved so um you know, you still need to pay attention, obviously, but it's uh, it's okay to have some things to occupy yourself on the stand. You know, it's not like you're on sentry duty or something. So. Yeah, I've always I've always felt the same way. I'd rather have something like that. That especially for me, like during all day sits in November, that kind of thing, a book or reading something on my phone or whatever it might be. I'd rather do that and stay out in the woods all day because of that little bit of help versus coming mm-hmm. in for four hours or two hours or whatever and completely miss that window of time out there. So if you need yep. a little something to help you, go for it as far as I'm concerned. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Now to wrap it up, we've got Gabe Adair. He's over there in Iowa. Let's hear his thoughts on late season hunting. So now we're staring December in the face. From your perspective, is the best behind us or do you like the late season? Do we have some good things still ahead for us here? Yeah, I love late season anymore. I don't like November. I mean, I, I, I know I killed my two biggest deer have been killed, you know, in November. Uh, my my two archery 200s of both November 10th and 12th. Um, but you when when I peel them off the wall, boy, it real quickly goes to late October, late, late November, and later. You know, um, I struggle a lot in November. And so, you know, when I start getting into that 10th and 12th and I haven't got any killed, I almost start – you know, looking towards the 21st and on because I just, we really struggle, you know, with these bigger deer once they start locking down with those. And so, yeah, I love late season. I'm a, you know, I don't farm actively right now, but I've grown up farming, you know, and so we've got equipment, we're fortunate, we got a lot of food. And so I love late season. Um, you know, I would rather give deer a place to live and hunt them on the edges and hunt them on food. That's, you know, probably, you know, one, you know, you, you put that together with entrance and exit, and I think you got it picked at that point. You know, I think you got it made. And so, um, you know, with with late season coming up, you've got good food sources, good grain. I'm a big grain guy when it gets late. I'd rather have corn and beans, 
Um, you know, when you get to that late season hunt and you got good food and you can get in and out, it's as deadly as any part of the year, in my opinion. Yeah. So, so if someone, you know, right now it's, it's today's the last day of November. So we're just starting to make that transition into December, into that late season kind of phase of the year. Um, is there anything that should be done or that people should be thinking about or, or even actually physically doing right now to prepare for this late season? Um, or would you say, you know, just get out and start hunting food or I don't know. Is there any kind of transitionary things they should be doing right now to get ready for that best late cold weather and hunts? No. And I would say, you know, if you've got to do something, you're behind the eight ball. I think it all has got to be done ahead of time. You've got to kind of prepare and have your stuff set up. Cause at this point I just lock down everything. I keep everything to a minimum. Um, and I really watch my cameras, you know, we'll, we'll run a bunch of cameras, you know, they start, coming back to the scrapes real hard once the rut winds down. It seems like the signpost kind of, you know, so you can run some cameras back on them scrapes and a lot of food source stuff, a lot of time lapse. You know, I run a lot of time lapse cameras so I can see the whole food plot before the sun goes down. And so that's what I'm doing, you know. And, and that's the other thing. You know, a lot of these food plots, I may have them set up to where, you know, they are tight to the bedding, you know, which is when you get those deer in there real early. You know, because I've killed a lot of here in the last few years, I've killed a lot of deer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, five, six, seven year olds and heck, uh, two years ago, I killed a nine and a half year old and it was like three fifteen. you know? So, wow. but that, yeah, but that's kind of getting back into that, you know, the food's where it needs to be. It's close to the bedding. They don't have to move very far to get to it. But then I've also got that, you know, component of if I'm going to put some food here, you know, how can I monitor it? How can I check it? Well, you know, that's kind of like the blind deal. I, I try to set it up to where, you know, as long as I got the right wind, I can get in there, pull some cards, get out midday or, or late morning, you know, and not have any issues. Um, you know, we're big on vehicles too, you know, we'll, I'd much rather pull in somewhere like a farmer would, you know, just in case something is on the food, you know, in the middle of the day, I'd rather pull in there and, you know, sometimes I'll even take the tractor in, you know, just cause they're used to it and it doesn't bother them as much, you know, but I'd much rather, you know, take a, a risk with a vehicle or a tractor than, you know, walking up a hill and blowing out a field, you know, on foot. So yeah. a lot of things. With the with the trail cameras, you, you were talking about you know monitoring these, and, and you talked about using vehicles to access it and things like that. Um, how often do you go in to check these cameras? Because that's always something I struggle with. Is to your point earlier, you want to keep everything, all your impact as minimal as possible, but at the same time, you need to monitor these somehow so that you can make sure you're hunting at the right time. So how do you balance that? Um, you know, I, if the wind's right and I'm cautious. I'm not going into their bedroom to get these. And so I, I don't worry about that as much. Now with that said, I'm not checking them every day, but I don't worry about it too much. I'm really careful with my feet. Um, you know, I'll really take care of my boots, but if the wind's right and I'm not leaving a bunch of boot tracks, which I'm there again, that's kind of one of my, my deals. I really watch my, my foot tracks. Um, it doesn't bother me too much. You know, I'll slip in, slip out. You know, I think, I think deer expect a certain amount of pressure. I think that they can, they, they live with the next amount of pressure. And I think that's a pressure that doesn't bother them. You know, you're not going into their bedroom. You're not bumping them out of bed. You're not, you know, as long as you're not blowing wind right down into a draw or a ditch or a block of woods they're in, you know, and you're careful. And that's your feet. I'm big on feet. Um, you know, I don't think it, it really hurts me too much, you know? So, you know, if I know there's a good one in there and I'm really monitoring, I mean, I, I may check the camera, you know, like that big one this year, we were checking that camera every couple of days, you know, but we, we got in, got out, you know, we didn't do it when the wind was wrong, but if we had the right wind, we'd go, we'd flip in, flip out, check it, you know, and 
make a decision from there. Yeah. Do you do any other scouting of any kind at this time of year? Maybe glassing or or literally walking around at all? Anything else other than the cameras? Yeah, glass. I'm a big I'm a big glass. I've got all kinds of places. Most of my farms, you know, they're tough, but you know, we've got advantage points, um, you know, that we can go park and just glass and sit and watch and you know, and I like doing that because I can cover a lot more ground. Growing up, my father was big. You know, that was one of the things we did. You know, we covered a lot of ground. We had a lot of ground to hunt growing up. Um, you know, and so rather than being stuck or confined to one spot, you know, we could bounce around and cover multiple farms and look at stuff. And, you know, a lot of the deer I kill, I mean, that's kind of where it'll start, you know, a lot of times is I'll, I'll pick them up from glassing or scouting. You know, I'll have their picture, but when you can lay eyeballs on and watch them for 10 minutes, you know, making natural movement, you know, then you can really start to, you know, connect the dots at that point. And so a lot of the deer I shoot, you know, that's a big part of it is, is glassing, scouting from the road, pulling into high points, you know, anywhere you can get away with it. So, so would it be fair to say that you are doing that more often than maybe you're even hunting during the late season? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My cameraman's love me. (laughs) (laughs) They they love, you know, because I'm not the guy that's going to just, pound it out for seven straight days i mean i may hunt one day in seven you know if that's you know because i'm not i'm not big on blind hunting i don't like to just go so oh, let's go in here the wind's right and, you know i like scenarios i like to know big deer in there i like to have a game plan that's what gets me fired up anymore you know and so when i can really start you know i like going into a set because i've got a whole bunch of data getting me there i don't like going and just setting all day in a set somewhere to say i'm hunting you know i would rather go go pick them points apart and start putting them together and be really fired up going in somewhere because I know he's either there or close or he's been there, you know? And so, yeah, I, I do t- I tons of scouting. I would, you know, uh, this year we, we weren't hunting mornings much at all because I didn't want to go take the chance. I, I knew I had his, I had his kitchen, you know, I could hunt him in the bedroom, but I knew I had the food. I knew that we could get in and out super, super easy. It was like a dream setup for in and out. So I just, you know, mornings we, we took a couple shots, seen him once, you know, about killed him that first move I made on him. But, you know, in the mornings I'd go run around the sections and park and watch and just see if I could put eyeballs on him. And, and we did, you know, we seen him quite a bit. Yeah. So, so in the late season then, what, what has to be present as far as conditions or data for you to take that shot? Um, like right now I'm struggling with, after that deer, um, I've got a handful of five-year-olds that didn't grow much. Um, and so I'm really struggling with even, I'm rolling the dice on maybe all of them, but one for letting them go another year to see what happens. Um, but you know, with like that one deer, I'm going to want to, I'm going to, I want to get a beat on where he's at, right. You know, I know where he likes to bed. I know kind of where his home is. Um, but I'll want to, I'll want to get him in on that food plot. I want to see him on camera. I'd like to see him in daylight. You know, whether it's scouting that food plot from a distance or slipping in and pulling a card. Um, but yeah, I won't, you know, I talked to Adam, my cameraman, just earlier today and, and he asked me what's going on. I said, absolutely nothing. There won't be. The weather's warm. I said, once it cools off, I said, I'm going to keep watching cameras. I'm going to keep scouting. And once I really get one, you know, once you know one's in there, then, then I'll get after it. But if, if I don't know there's one in there, I'll leave it alone, you know. And so between cameras or, or glassing, you know, a field, I'll sit back. Um, rather than take a shot and go up in there and, you know, just on a whim and, and, you know, maybe something happens and, and booger it up and, you know, and set yourself back. Mm-hmm. 
so so would you not even go in if we got a great set of conditions? So let's say you haven't gotten eyes on them, you know, recently in daylight or something like that, but we just get this mega cold front and snow. Will something like that dream scenario be enough to get you to go in there, even though you don't have the the the, the sighting or the picture to tell you to go? Or is it no, I gotta have that. Yeah, in that scenario, I will. If you get a, you know, that that big cold push coming down, big front, cold temperatures, snow, you know, the perfect storm everybody wants and looks for, you bet. I'll roll the dice on those. Average conditions, no. I'll just sit back. I'll wait, you know. I'll, no, I've killed a lot of deer in average conditions because, there again, I went and pulled the card or glassed the field, and, wow, he's in there, you know, 45 minutes before dark. And, and then, you know, the next night get in there on very fair, you know, conditions that are – fair at best, you know, warm or windy, whatever, and get them killed. But, yeah, if, if I get that perfect storm of big front moving in, cold temps, some snow combined, yeah, then then what I do is if I don't have one really, you know, a beat on one, then I just use my gut of, okay, I'm pretty sure this is where he's going to be, this is where he's always been, this is where he likes to be this time of the year, and then I'll take my shot, you know, at that point. So weather will get me will get me on a food source even without, you know, getting some sort of data knowing they're in there. So so what about this scenario then? Let's say you've got a handful of different types of food sources on your property in the late season. Maybe you maybe you got a, a grain field somewhere, maybe that's corner beans. And then maybe you've got a green food source, maybe it's brassicas or something like that. Uh and who knows what else? Maybe then there's a natural forage area, or maybe there's still some acorns or something along those lines in another section of your farm. I find myself yeah. in this dilemma. I'm going to go into a late season hunt. Conditions seem good, and I'm like, okay, which food source should I focus on? Because so much late season hunting is focused on food. How do you choose the right food? Is there any set of conditions that you say, okay, now I'm going to focus on green, now I'm going to focus on grain, now I'm going to do something different? How do you think about that? Um, that's easy. <laughs> Corn is king. <laughs> that is easy. I, mean, <laughs> I just, I've always lived by quarantine. And here's why. Late season, you know, you, you get your guys that are diehard bean guys, and I always laugh and say, you better hope my corn plot ain't across the fence or across the road from you because I'm going to own them. And, <laughs> and I truly believe that. I just don't, I think beans are great. I think they've got their place. I think they're, they're an awesome food source for a longer time frame. You know, it's like alfalfa. I think alfalfa is probably the, the one I've taken it off my farm and I've put it back on my farm. And I think alfalfa is, you know, if you want to hold deer, it's one of the most important, you know, components. I think beans have an awesome place. But when you get right down to late season hunting and what they really need, it's, it's cars, it's corn. You know, they're going to come to it. You, you know, you've got a food plot that's half corn, half beans. I'm not saying they're going to go all, you know, but that corn's going to own the majority of them. And I think, with consistency it's gonna there's gonna be some nicer yeah they're gonna they're gonna hit you're gonna see deer in the beans a little more than the corn but i think consistently day in day out when you're hunting you know in our region where you're snow and cold and there's survival mode corn's king do you do you give any do you have any um oh what am i trying to say green food sources like turnips brassicas rape kale all that kind of stuff does that do much for you yeah we use them yeah, we use them, and I think there's some, you know, like post-rut, like right now, uh, you know, first gun season for us, early December, I think it's phenomenal, um, you know, because it's the last green. Everything else is done turned, and, you know, if you've got some green and everything else is already turned, yeah, you're, you know, you're you're in the chips. And so and so that's where, you know, a lot of these different, you know, food sources have their spots, 
and you know, and I'll hunt them and I love them. But when you start talking consistently, day in, day out, corn is king. All right, and that's a wrap. Thank you all for tuning in. Hope you found this one helpful. Um, I will just leave you with the same reminders I gave you at the top, which is number one, check out the new book from Meat Eater, The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival by Stephen Rinella with contributions from other folks on the team too. So check that out at Amazon or TheMeatEater.com, wherever you want to find it. Also check out the Back 40, which is on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. New episodes coming out every Sunday. And finally, have faith, keep at it, have fun. The late season can be a great season, but you got to have that mental toughness and stick to to enjoy that. So uh, I'm wishing you well and hoping for the best. And until next time, thank you for listening and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.